The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to this podcast for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. I'm Hank Fessler, the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Program Director at Johns Hopkins and the guest editor of the second medical education theme issue of the Annals of the ATS. This issue is currently available online. It includes a wide variety of useful research and perspective papers on training and assessing learners in pulmonary and critical care. I particularly want to draw your attention to a very personal essay by John Kreit, last year's ATS Outstanding Educator Awardee. His path to greatness as an educator, with its twists and turns, should be reassuring and inspiring to those of you just setting off on that road. One topic that's very important to graduate medical education but is not covered in this issue is trainee duty hours. This is particularly timely. The Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education is currently reviewing and revising their duty hour rules and expects to have a new policy in place by July 1st. They're right now soliciting public comment at their website. A major randomized trial of two different sets of duty hour rules for surgery interns was recently published in the New England Journal. Another large trial is underway in internal medicine residency programs. Because of this confluence of factors, I've invited Sanjay Desai to join us to talk about what we've learned about duty hours, benefits, and costs since they were first introduced nationally in 2003. Dr. Desai is the program director of the Osler Internal Medicine Training Program at Johns Hopkins, where he's an associate professor. He's one of the leaders of the iCompare trial of internal medicine duty hours. I'm also most proud to introduce him as a graduate of my fellowship program and a great colleague and friend. Sanjay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Hank, and uh, thank you for choosing to highlight this issue of duty hours for this podcast. Uh, My pleasure. Sanjay, when duty hour regulations were first introduced in 2003, the ACGME was under enormous pressure from the Institute of Medicine and Congress to just do something for the sake of patient safety. What do we know about how they arrived at that first set of regulations? It's interesting, Hank. Many actually date the beginning of duty hours policy to 2003. And while that is the first national and most sweeping standards that were implemented, there was research conducted and policy actually in place well before then. For example, standards were set in 1989 uh, in New York State by the Bell Commission after Libby Zion passed in the teaching hospital. Similarly, some standards were in place even for internal medicine that existed well before 2003. But as you described, great pressure was in fact in place as part of the context of the 2003 and the 2011 standards. Some of the pressure was from the public, as you might imagine, and some was from the government. In fact, there was discussion even in Congress about regulating duty hours for residents using government policy. And because in this country we've chosen as a profession to regulate ourselves, there was an urgency to resolve these concerns effectively and quickly before the government actually stepped in. The standards in 2003 largely reflected the New York State regulations that were passed in 1989, and they included, amongst other limits, a maximum of 80 hours per week, one day off in seven, and a maximum shift length of 24 hours plus six hours for transitions of care. Many may remember this as it's commonly referred to as the 24 plus six rule. And interestingly, but not surprisingly, given that there were few duty hour studies at the time, these standards were largely not rooted in rigorous evidence. In fact, Dr. Bertrand Bell of the Bell Commission stated that the committee arrived at its limit of 80 hours per week while talking to one of his colleagues on his porch who suggested that 80 hours seemed reasonable. Seems reasonable to me, too. But then nearly a decade passed 
before new regulations were passed in 2011. What, what had we learned in the interim about the effects of duty hour limits on patient safety and resident well-being? Well, as many may remember, the 2003 regulations prompted substantial concern by the graduate medical education stakeholders as unnecessary overregulation. Uh, however, I think most of us in graduate medical education now would agree that uh, having no limits on work hours for our trainees could certainly lead to unsafe conditions. You know, one of the benefits, I think, uh, of this loud controversy that was created by the duty hour regulations in 2003 is that it prompted serious investigation. In fact, many trials were conducted to see how the new rules met their intended goal of actually improving patient safety. You know, one of the most cited trials during this time showed a benefit in patient safety related to decreased duty hours. And this, this study, just to remind everyone, assigned interns in an ICU to either 16-hour shifts or 28-hour shifts. And they found statistically higher rates of medical errors created by interns who were working the longer shifts. Now, very importantly, there was no difference in the errors that actually reached patients. And I think this is critical because teaching environments are, in fact, designed to have systems to prevent errors from reaching patients. Moreover, the vast majority of medical errors that were noticed in this trial were related to medication ordering. And this is an area I think that all of us would agree where there has been considerable progress made in the last decade in creating even safer mechanisms for us to prescribe medications to our patients. Also importantly, this trial was a single institution study and therefore it was difficult to use these data to generalize to national policy. You know, at the same time, after 2003, many large, uh, what are called before and after trials to seeing what impact that policy actually had on patient safety were conducted. These were largely observational trials, it should be noted. The most comprehensive trials studied hundreds of thousands of patients across a wide variety of both medical and surgical patients. The abundance of these data demonstrated no difference in patient outcomes, arguing that the policy was, in fact, not having its intended effect. Studies at this time also looked at the effects of the new rules on residents, on medical students, and on faculty, and suggested that their educational experience had, in fact, deteriorated with the new policy. Therefore, Hank, and then I would say that the, the data in aggregate showed that the policies were not having their intended effect of improving patient safety, uh, but these studies did have substantial limitations, either in size or in design. But to the general public, it just makes no sense that shorter work hours wouldn't improve patient outcomes. Why didn't they work as expected? I agree. This is counterintuitive. It's a question that comes up often, and it's, it's I think, difficult to explain to the medical community and even more difficult to explain to people that are not part of the medical community. You know, the reason is that the clinical and training environment is highly, highly complex, and the relationship from hours worked to patient safety is very far from direct. There are many variables between duty hours and patient safety, all of which affect patient safety in differing and often opposite directions. You know, one way to think about it is that duty hours standards rest at the interface between two competing sciences, both related to patient safety. On one hand, sleep science suggests that residents who work less hours should sleep more, therefore be less fatigued, and therefore they should make fewer errors. On the other hand, operational science suggests that residents who work less hours will have to transition care more often, interrupting the knowledge of their patients, and therefore may make more errors. So the net effect of the sleep science and the operational science is in fact not known. Proponents of duty hour limits often invoke the analogy with limits that are placed on airline pilots when they fly. 
You know, however, I think that this analogy breaks down quickly once you consider the differences between a pilot and a physician. For example, a pilot's job is to focus on a routine task for hours in which nothing serious is expected to happen. And that pilot needs to know nothing about the passengers that are on his or her plane. In this situation, there is much to gain from rest and almost nothing to lose from transitioning to a new pilot frequently. A physician, on the other hand, has to focus on highly dynamic issues in which serious complications are almost certain to occur, otherwise these patients would not be hospitalized. To best respond to these complications, the physician must know as much as possible about every patient that they are caring for. In this situation, I think it's much easier to understand that the balance between fatigue and transitions of care is far from simple. You know, to make it even more complicated, Hank, the argument that working less hours leads to more sleep and therefore less fatigue, while this is seemingly obvious, turns out not to be obvious at all. For example, studies have shown that interns randomized to 16-hour limits versus 28-hour limits, in fact, obtain no more sleep on average. This is true even if you provide them with protected periods when they can sleep or take a nap while on call. That is, you can make 20-something-year-old residents leave the hospital earlier. You can give them protected periods for naps, but in the end, you cannot make them sleep more. Additionally, as our insights in chronobiology become even more sophisticated, there's concern that a night shift, even if shorter in duration, may produce the same level of fatigue as a longer shift that covers daytime hours. Lastly, work hours affect many more variables that also affect patient safety. So beyond just transitions in care, these variables include patient census, supervision, burnout, and of course the actual clinical training of our physicians. As hours in the hospital are reduced, the opportunities for educational and clinical development are similarly reduced. So again, while it's not immediately obvious, there are many reasons to believe policy focused simply on duty hours would not have a direct effect on patient safety and may in fact have substantial effects on clinical development. So we learned a great deal between 2003 and 2011. How did the ACGME respond to this state of knowledge in 2011? Well, it's interesting. About five years after the 2003 policy went into effect, the Institute of Medicine published a report on duty hours suggesting even stricter limits were needed to have the intended effect on patient safety. And as you know, in 2011, the ACGME decided to further restrict duty hours. This time it was primarily for interns. They set a 16-hour limit in the duration an intern can work continuously, a 28-hour restriction for residents, and for the first time they created rules related to time off. That is that a, an intern or a resident needed 10 hours between leaving the hospital after one work period and arriving for their next work period. While not immediately obvious again, the 16 hours plus the 10 hours of rest that's required before they return to the hospital makes it exceedingly difficult to make an effective schedule. And that's simply because it goes beyond 24, which is the unit that we typically will use to make schedules that are flexible for our programs. And so because of this, the predominant schedule across the country, which I think many will, will have noticed, has become night floats. Well, what's different now? What do we know now in 2016 that we didn't know then, and, and how has the ACGME changed their approach? Well, I think, fortunately, we've learned a great deal in recent years that has influenced the approach of the ACGME related to duty hours. First, we've made considerable advances in understanding sleep, fatigue, and alertness. For example, we're learning the impact of working at night versus the day on human performance. Additionally, we have learned the impact of the unintended consequences related to these policies. As an example, the policies and their enforcement 
at the program level have created substantial conflicts in professionalism for both our trainees and for our program directors. They've also raised concerns regarding professionalization of our future physicians, specifically that the policies encourage a focus on the clock more than on the patient, and this is a concern for all the stakeholders in graduate medical education as well as to the public. Another unintended consequence is work compression. That is, while the hours are shortened by policy, most institutions have not provided sufficient resources to proportionally reduce the workload on these residents. Therefore, the residents are now doing a similar amount of work as before, but they're doing it in fewer hours. This leads to more stress, less time directly in front of patients, less education, and ultimately, concerningly, more burnout. Finally, there is a growing concern that the reduced hours are resulting in reduced competency of our future physicians. And this is a particular concern in procedural fields where case volumes and case complexity is so important. So given all of these issues, the ACGME has said that more evidence is needed to properly inform their policies. To that end, they have supported two of the largest randomized trials ever conducted in medical education. Both are focused on duty hour policy. The first is called the first trial, and it's in surgical residents. And the second is called the iCompare trial, which is performed in internal medicine residents. Can you tell us a little about iCompare? What will we learn from this trial? So the iCompare trial and the first trial are actually very similar in design. They are both policy trials, and as such, they're designed to test the non-inferiority of a more flexible duty hours policy. In iCompare, we have 63 internal medicine programs that are randomized to either current duty hours or to more flexible duty hours. The more flexible hours are constrained only by three rules, 80 hours per week, one day off in seven, and no more frequent than Q3 in-house call, and all of these are averaged over four weeks. The experiment for iCompare began on July 1st of 2015 and runs for one academic year, therefore ending on June 30th, 2016. The primary outcome of iCompare is 30-day all-cause mortality, and that outcome was picked primarily to influence policymakers. Other patient safety outcomes are also being measured, and we're also excited to measure many different educational outcomes. These include the experiences of both the residents as well as the faculty. As part of the trial, all 6,000-plus trainees that are part of iCompare receive a one-minute survey every two weeks that asks about their educational and clinical experiences during the last 24 hours. We're also excited about two sub-studies that are embedded in iCompare. The first one focuses on sleep and alertness. In this effort, a subset of interns wear actographs or, or sleep watches to measure their actual quantity of sleep, and they also take three-minute alertness tests every morning to measure their alertness post-call. The second sub-study is a time-motion study designed to record how interns actually spend their time. Uh, there is a concern, again, with work compression that as duty hours become restricted, interns spend less time in front of patients. So as part of the time motion sub-study, a subset of interns are actually followed around by trained observers who then record how much time they spend with patients, how much time they spend on other clinical activities, and how much time they spend with education. So an important and very complicated study. But if the ACGME is striving to be data-driven, why do you think they're releasing the new duty hour regulations before the iCompare trial is complete and published? Well, I think there's two main reasons for this, Hank. The first is that the review of duty hours was actually pre-planned. It was planned 
well before FIRST and iCompare were even designed. So my understanding is that when the 2011 standards went into place, the ACGME at that time had committed to review all of their standards every five years to make sure that they were in fact current and were the best policies that they could put in place. The current process that's unfolding is a result of that initial commitment. So the first section of standards that are being reviewed include the policies that relate to duty hours. The second reason is the publication of the first trial in the New England Journal, as you mentioned, in February of this year. This trial, done again in surgical residents, demonstrated that flexible hours were not less safe for patients and were better for resident education. The availability of these data is compelling for all stakeholders in graduate medical education and will allow the ACGME to include them into their current policy discussions. Now, what do you think the future holds for duty hour regulations and for duty hour research? I'm actually really encouraged by the commitment of the ACGME to build an evidence base to inform their policies. I believe with duty hours and other important regulatory policies, the ACGME and the public will continue to demand rigorously obtained, high-quality data to ensure that our patients receive the safest care and that our physicians receive the best training. I also believe duty hours research is still in its nascent stage. We're studying with iCompare and FIRST fairly basic principles related to hours worked. There's a compelling and urgent need to study many other aspects of the training environment using similarly rigorous methods, including, for example, fatigue management and, very importantly, resident well-being. So for listeners who want to comment, how do they get their opinions to the ACGME? So I think the ACGME is very interested in hearing from everyone. Uh, the most effective way will be to submit your opinions through your program leadership, uh, who can advance them themselves, or directly to your professional societies. If almost all professional societies have offered the ACGME formal opinions on duty hour regulations. That was Sanjay Desai, the Internal Medicine Residency Program Director at Johns Hopkins, and this is Hank Fessler. Thank you, Sanjay, for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Hank. It was a pleasure.